Situary Selectors podcast, Let's Talk About ESG. I'm Margarita Kirakosian, Deputy Editor at Cityware Selector, and joining me today is Wendy Cromwell, Director of Sustainable Investments at Wellington. Wendy, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. A lot of exciting developments uh, in the sustainable markets these days, especially with uh, Biden Climate Summit being a big and bold statement, being um, that being either jobs creation in the green industries or spending. So for you, kind of as a representative of an ask management company, what are the biggest and most promising uh, kind of points that he made and that you could kind of like take forward in your work? Thanks for the question. And as we're speaking, we're, we're talking on the Friday of the climate summit um, that's happening in the US. So there will be more, presumably there will be more to discuss even after the meetings today, but we've been really heartened by the direction of the administration because we are seeing more global alignment on the theme of climate. Um, and that aligns with our own um, commitments to clients to advance climate um, and the transition through our investment research and investment efforts. Um, Specifically, um, yesterday, the administration announced that the U.S. will have a CO2 reduction target of 50% by 2030. That directly aligns with what the asset managers who have signed up for the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative have committed to in their own portfolios to achieve net zero by 2050, but also to achieve a 50% carbon reduction um, by 2030. Um, And the nature of that commitment was all informed by the prospects of the transition being underway, only going one direction and being more prominently featured in regulation and in innovation. Um, And in order for companies to really have a good long-term return profile, needing to have a plan for that transition. So it's nice to see all of that alignment coming together between public policy and private commitments so, so soon. And uh, I know that you've been part of the panel, uh, which had John Kerry on it. So what were the kind of key discussion points and uh, key takeaways basically from that? Well, I was really impressed by um, John Kerry, who obviously has been our Secretary of State. He's been a Senator um, and is now the special climate envoy um, for, for the US and reporting to the president um, with his appreciation for the role that capital markets can play. Um, And he really highlighted how specifically this net zero asset managers initiative, um, which was launched last December, and we were proud to be a founding member, um, how now it has really captured a lot of attention and a lot of support. There's 87 asset managers who have signed on who are um, delineating their climate action plans um, and how that's such an important signal to the leaders Um, global leaders who were meeting yesterday and today in the U.S. in terms of saying, okay, the finance people in our society are highlighting that this is necessary for companies to transition to maintain and retain their long-term value. That should give us as policymakers encouragement um, to think through what our commitment should be. So that alignment. I was also really impressed by um, this statement that he made that uh, President Biden, Biden will likely announce um, the need for climate disclosures, mandated climate disclosures by companies who list in the U.S. Um, that are harmonized in some way with Europe. 
So he didn't specify what that harmonization would look like. He said there's more work to be done there. But again, um, rather than seeing separate or parallel regimes globally, which is awfully hard to navigate as an investor or, um, or as a company, starting to see more harmonization and consolidation around um, some ideas. So, Wendy, uh, I know that you're a member of the Global Advisory Group uh, of the Net Zero um, Alliance Initiative. And what I wanted to ask you is actually, how does that pledge look in practice? What kind of uh, steps can asset managers take to reach that goal? Because obviously, a pledge is a good thing, but you need to know how you are going to practically get there. Well, thank you for the question. The Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative um, is a commitment by um, asset managers globally to achieve net zero by 2050 in line with global efforts to limit warming to one and a half degrees Celsius. And the actual commitment itself has three high level um, goals and then a lot of a fair amount of specificity. Um, and the, I, you can look that up um, on the internet, net zero asset managers initiative. Um, but the first uh, uh, Thing that we've committed to is to work in partnership with our asset owner clients on their decarbonization goals to explain to them um, why we think it's important, why we, how we understand that the low carbon transition is underway and only moving in one direction, and that um, companies that are going to succeed um, in the future are going to need to have a plan um, and a strategy for that change in, in capital markets and in the economy. So that's number one, work with our clients um, on their decarbonization goals, because we are fiduciaries and we manage assets. Many of our assets are managed on behalf of those clients. The second goal is to set an interim target by COP26, which is in November of this year, for the proportion of assets that will be ma managed in alignment with the goal uh, initially. Um, and those assets that will be managed in line with the goal um, will have a speed bump, as I call it, at 2030, for 50% reduction in emissions. Um, and then the third is to ratchet up that proportion through time. And also there's two ratchets, ratchet up the proportion of assets, and then also um, you know, show the progress against the goal to 2030 and the goal to 2050 through time. Um, so that's at a high level what, what folks have committed to. Um, as of today, there's 87 asset managers um, who have committed to this, uh, which is remarkable. And one of the roles of the advisory group and, and the founding members, which, which we're a part of, is to help others um, join. And so we've done a fair number, or I've done a fair number of meetings with other asset managers talking about our path and how we got there and what tools we expect to use. And when I, I share those, I typically share five tools um, that we expect to use in meeting our commitment um, first and foremost, the number one tool is engagement with companies to set science-based targets. Through our work with Woodwell Climate Research Center, we've studied physical climate risk, heat, drought, wildfire, hurricanes, floods, access to water issues, and we've become very acutely aware that we can't insulate our portfolios from climate risks simply by selling securities because the emissions will still exist and they will come back to harm our portfolios in the form of physical climate risks, even if we don't own the top emitters. Um, so a more holistic strategy from our perspective is to work with the companies themselves to understand 
the transition and to create a plan for the transition and to lay out science-based targets within that plan so that we're decarbonizing the economy and making more progress. Now, in addition to that tool, we can um, use divestment, selling securities as an escalation tool to the extent that we're not making progress with a company. We can lower the warming potential of our portfolio through portfolio construction. We can invest in companies that provide carbon mitigation solutions. Um, and uh, we can very incrementally use carbon offsets at certain parts of the process. And while that can be controversial, I think it's important. Um, it's an important tool to be able to use credible carbon offsets based on nature-based solutions, um, say in advance of the 2030 speed bump, as I've referred to it. So if you get to 2029 and you're very close working with a company who is working on their transition plan, you've made a lot of progress, rather than being forced to sell that company um, to meet your objective at 2030, being able to buy credible carbon offsets to get you to your target commitment um, while you continue to work on that company and make more progress. We think that's an important uh, tool, only incrementally. Mm -hmm. And interesting that you mentioned carbon offsets and uh, that they should be credible. So again, knowing how much effort you've put into this topic and researching it and defining what it means for Wellington. Uh, so again, uh, where do you draw the line with this? Because obviously there might be def different definitions uh, of what that actually means for companies. It's a great point. I think that market um, needs more re refinement and transparency. And one of the things that we're working on with Woodwell and, and others is this idea of being able to um, really trace better, say, some of the, the forestry initiatives that these carbon offsets support. Um, so just, just as background, 50% of the world's forest carbon is locked up in just 1% of old growth, large diameter trees in primary intact forests. Um, so, Every tree is not created equally and being able to better understand, um, you know, what you're supporting through the carbon offset process and having that more traceable and transparent um, will be very important. And there's a number of initiatives underway to do that. And you also mentioned uh, climate risk and how to measure it. And this is something that asset managers are still kind of grappling with. But uh, have you looked at that at all? And how far in the way is Valentin when it comes to kind of integrating climate risk in assessment of value of companies, for example? Well, there's, there's two primary forms of climate risk. One is transition risk and the other is physical risk. I think most people are most focused on transition risk, which focuses on the emissions profile of a company or portfolio and tries to understand how that company or portfolio will be affected in, by changes in policies um, or changes in consumer preferences or technological disruption. Um, so it is an emissions focused risk. Um, whereas Physical climate risk um, is more focused on the outcomes of those emissions, what those emissions cause, um, which is that increased heat, drought, wildfire, hurricanes, floods, access to water, sea level rise, air quality issues. Um, and so recognizing that that was a gap in the market 
back in 2018, we launched a partnership with a scientific organization, Woodwell Climate Research Center, um, to bridge the gap between climate science and finance. And one of the things that, that I often share with people is when we sat down with the head of Woodwell, a guy named Phil Duffy, brilliant scientist, we said, we wanna understand the impact of heat, drought, wildfire, et cetera, in basis points. And he said to us, what's a basis point? <laughs> and, and I love to tell that story because um, Phil's a really smart guy. And, and what it, it shows to me is that clim the climate scientists actually have a lot of analytical knowledge and they know um, the, their projections have been highly accurate and they know where and when different types of outcomes are going to happen, but they don't know basis points or capital markets. And people like us, we know basis points and capital markets, but we don't know RCP scenarios and climate projections. And so it was really important to us to bring those two disciplines together in order to make each of them more effective. And so that's what we've been doing with Woodwell is understanding the science. They help us create granular grid maps to understand where these things are gonna happen and over what time frame. We overlay those maps with capital markets data, typically information about our holdings. And then we can do comparisons. Um, you know, which holdings are more impacted, which holdings are less impacted. Do we think that it's been priced in? Is there an opportunity for engagement with the company to understand their strategy around this physical climate risk better? And that just, you know, feeds upon itself and creates a very interesting virtuous cycle where if we, we see a, a company has physical climate risk, we can talk to them about it. Um, and ask them if they, first we look to see if they've recognized it publicly. We use natural language processing to look for that in documents. But then we can sit down with the company and we can say, hey, you know, this is what we see in your map. This, you know, this seems like it could be a problem. How have you thought about it? And that opens up a whole dialogue that can be consultative from us to them or them to us on how they could think about it or what they have done to mitigate it. But it also helps us to understand management quality, you know, how receptive are they to this new piece of information? How aware are they of, of this data already? So it does give you different insights into a company um, and helps you uh, understand the company's value better. Mm -hmm. And can you give me examples of uh, such company interactions, let's say, and what they resulted in? Sure. Um, there have been uh, numerous companies where, well, first of all, I should highlight that um, after we got through the initial round of research on each of the various variables that I've just mentioned, um, we had this idea working with CalPERS, who's one of our asset owner partners in this partnership, um, to create a um, consultative document that we could share with companies to the in our engagements. And, and CalPERS uses it too, and it actually has been it introduced through the CFTC climate subcommittee process as well. And we refer to that as the, as PROC stands for physical risk of climate change. Um, and so what that looks like is, um, you know, in our analysis of companies, we've looked at um, over 1300 companies through this lens. Some have more risk than others to the extent that a company um, seems to have material risk um, based on the, the, the science and the maps and the locational data that we've been able to find. We then look at their 
um, uh, transcripts and um, 10Ks and 10Qs to see if they've acknowledged that risk. Because that gives us a sense of, you know, maybe, maybe they're already aware of this. Maybe we're just catching up. Um, and then if we don't see that, we can take it to um, the company meeting and share it with them. And there's been um, uh, a number of conversations that we've had with companies saying, here's the map, here's the risk, what do you think? So I'll give you two examples. Um, in one case, we recognized that there was a large company that had built um, a new plant, a $2 billion plant that was expected to have a high revenue contribution um, in a flood zone. Now, Sometimes we find that our, our flood maps are different than the FEMA flood maps because they're a little bit more up to date or they're based on projections. But in this case, the FEMA flood maps had highlighted this as well. Um, so that interaction was really highlighting this to the management team and asking them more about that decision-making process, that there was publicly available data um, that, that would have alerted them to this risks. Um, and, and that, engagement really um, helped us come to the conclusion that we didn't want to own the company uh, because the they didn't seem to be taking these risks into account in terms of their strategic planning. And we thought that their revenue projections might be inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Another such engagement would be um, with a company that that is a propane supplier um, and they had uh, really based their based their projections based on historical data. Um, and so we helped them to see that um, basing their projections, uh, their uh, data on prospective utilization data um, might be more informative to the marketplace. Um, and so that they um, have adopted that practice. A third example um, would be uh, engaging with uh, utilities on um, some of the new measures that they've taken and they put in place post the California wildfires mm -hmm. um, to talk about whether the triggers that they've put in place now would have even been triggered in advance of those wildfires. So you can see it can be multidimensional and it can lead to, um, you know, all different types of conversations just based on this one form of research. And that can be really productive and bring a new lens to the investment um, thesis. Mm -hmm. And can you highlight any kind of like positive stories where you've engaged and actually the company reacted positively, or maybe you've put uh, a vote in about uh, certain climate resolutions and that got positively received and taken forward? Sure. And I expect um, a lot of progress on this front um, going forward too. But uh, we, uh, a couple of things. One is we've actually had um, several companies adopt um, the PROC framework that I was referring to, that physical risk mm -hmm. of climate change framework, and then provide more disclosure and strategic thinking around how they're going to navigate these physical climate risks. I see that as a win because what we're really trying to do is build resilience and adaptation into the system um, because we don't, we don't actually want these companies to be caught flat-footed because that would be highly disruptive. Um, to, to capital markets. So to the extent that this helps them create better strategic plans, we see that as a win. Um, and, and we've seen that with companies actually referring to the document in some of their literature. Um, we also uh, have used this more recently um, as an engagement tool. Our, our signing up for and being 
founding members of the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, we've highlighted that to companies. Um, so just, I think it was two weeks ago, we met with a, a integrated oil company and we said, you know, we really think that you need to have a transition plan. You know, this is how we see the transition unfolding. Um, we think that you need to um, think through what that plan is, communicate it to the market. Um, and uh, they've agreed to take that on. Now they haven't announced it yet. Um, and certainly that's been um, the work of Climate Action 100, which we're, where we're also members as well, is to make more progress with those companies on creating transition plans. So I think there is a fair amount of success and there will be more um, now that you have a more uh, holistic initiative around net zero with so many asset managers committing to it. It just is a self-reinforcing cycle. Mm -hmm, definitely. And well, going back on net zero pledges, so for you again, from the Wellington perspective, uh, what are the biggest challenges on this pathway? So what do you see as like the biggest bumps on the road, let's say, and how do you envision maybe overcoming them? Well, I mean, there are challenges, but there are also opportunities. I mean, one of the things about Wellington in terms of our business structure is um, about 90% of our assets are managed on behalf of, of clients where we don't have determinative control. So we can't say, hey, we're going to take your money. We're going to do this with it. What we can do is we can educate them why, on why we think this would be a smart and sound investment strategy. And so that's a, you know, a somewhat unique. Everyone has that as part of their um, challenge, but it's a somewhat unique feature in terms of the proportion for us because we just don't have a lot of sponsored funds. Instead, we work with a lot of um, sponsors of funds as a sub-advisor. In other words, we do the investments and they actually own, own the funds and the distribution of the funds. Um, but I say that that's the challenge. It's also an opportunity. Those are some of the clients, those large sub-advisory clients where we've had, um, they're very thoughtful, they're very analytical, they're very engaged, and we've had really productive conversations with them where it's led to them also making this commitment, which then unlocks the opportunity for the funds that we manage on their behalf. Um, and so I would highlight Vanguard as a large sub-advisor who's made this commitment. And now we're working with them on how we can align the funds that we manage for Vanguard um, in this way. So it's a challenge and an opportunity. Mm -hmm, definitely. Uh, one interesting aspect of that, I think, is also uh, kind of partners you are working with to define how you're going to get there. And you've mentioned Woodwell several times during uh, this conversation, which uh, kind of like makes me wonder, firstly, how did you find them? And secondly, what is the kind of like big next project that you are trying to push through together? Um, so Woodwell, this was, uh, this started back in, um, probably the 2016-17 timeframe where we had a, a, a leader within Wellington who was do doing a lot of substantive climate research and bringing this to the fore, this idea that physical climate risk isn't being appropriately focused on um, it, by capital markets folks. Um, and so he raised awareness and then we launched a, a project to understand how we could better bridge that gap. And we looked at different ways to do that. And we actually, there are some vendors out there who try to provide this data. And I think they do strong work. Um, but what we recognized after doing due diligence on about six of the vendors is that um, it would be unlikely for our investors 
to really adopt the work of a vendor um, where they, the investors themselves weren't part of the process and didn't understand the assumptions. Um, and so for us, we thought it'd be more powerful to partner with a research-based organization aligned with our orientation to be research-based to build the practice together um, so that it feeds on itself. We can inform the scientists, they can inform us, and that would be better, um, a better springboard or a groundwork for incorporating it into investment decision-making. Um, so that's how we landed on Woodwell um, after you know, thinking about it uh, through multiple lenses. Um, in terms of the projects that, that we're working on with them now, um, you know, there's still a fair amount of work to do on the variables that I keep highlighting um, and understanding them more deeply and how they interact with each other. And just on Wednesday of this week, we had a meeting on, on exactly that compound risks and how one of these risks can feed into the other and what it looks like when they do. So that's an area of, of uh, active research. Um, tipping points is another area of active research. Um, country case studies, bringing this to life from more of a geography perspective is another active part of our research with Woodwell. Um, and then uh, last but not least, um, some of our asset owner partners are really interested in trying to think about how to build this into their strategic asset, strategic asset allocation processes. Um, so those are kind of four, four big bodies of work that we're working on right now. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned tipping point. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, sure. Um, so the, when you get, if I use heat, um, as an example, when you get the maps, um, you see that there are certain places um, geographically that within this decade, 2020 to 2029, um, they will see more extreme heat um, by a significant amount on an annual basis. So something like two to four months, depending on the geography of extreme heat. Um, and that is, extreme heat is measured by the intersection of temperature and humidity because it has more severe consequences on the human body. Um, and so what we've been trying to figure out is when that matters to the, the population. Um, so if you're a property manager, um, you know, you, you can see the property, um, sorry, like a REITs analyst, if you will, you want to understand um, a couple of things that are going on. You want to understand, you know, what is the physical climate risk? Um, what is the, the tax base or the fiscal situation of the location to adapt to that climate risk? And what does the demography of that location look like? Um, so that you can better estimate when it's going to impact the value of the security. So the physical risk on its own doesn't tell you those second two pieces, because if you have enough money to address the, the risk as a municipality, for example, then it may be less harmful to you than another less well-funded municipality. And so it may be okay to own an apartment complex in one geography that has this risk versus another geography that has the same risk, just dependent upon the ability for, to adapt in those locations and the dem demography of those um, locations. Um, so that's what we mean by understanding tipping points. Mm -hmm. 
um, so kind of like when we talk about the whole net zero kind of like initiatives and pledges, what I find sometimes, and I'm not saying that's members of the initiative, but there is kind of like a lot of uncertainty about how to interpret it. And one of the kind of like wildest suggestions I've heard so far is, oh, okay, so if I invest in green energy, that might be offsetting my coal investments, let's say. So again, will that be something that is acceptable? Or you think that you need to think about it on a more granular level than that? And kind of like, can you even kind of offset that by shorting oil stocks, let's say? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple of reasons that we wanted to be a part of the initiative besides um, uh, it just because we think it makes good investment sense. Um, and one of those reasons is to be part of the standard setting group that's creating the methodology for asset classes where the methodology is not well defined. Um, so the methodology for net zero is better defined in um, the corporate's realm than it is in any other asset class. And obviously we need to make more progress on other asset classes. So that was a big motivation for us. We wanted to be part of that process. And then the second is to define more precisely the methodology for what does it mean to invest in carbon mitigating solutions and how does that how does that affect the calculation? Right now, I think the two things are kind of tracked in separate accounts, if you will. Um, the emissions reductions or the reduction in target warming potential, um, and then this other feature of investing in solutions. Both of those things are important. We need to figure out a way to, to bring them together, but I don't think it's a one-for-one -one offset that you can continue investing in everything that you invest in and then invest in the same amount of of solutions and that those two net themselves out and then and then we're all good. Um, that's not going to be the answer, but that methodology, I think you're right, um, hasn't been defined. Now, sometimes, you know, that can be a limiter to adoption by some firms. They'll say, well, we wanna wait um, until everything's done and dusted and figured out. Um, but for us, it was important to make the commitment because by making the commitment, we're also committing to figuring that out. And I just think it puts a mm -hmm. finer point on that. Um, level, level of intentionality to, to figuring out how that should work. Um, and also we wanted to be part of that, uh, you know, that thought process. Um, so that was our motivation. Mm -hmm. And obviously part of the commitment is reducing emissions, which is a big part of that, but also it's about investing in climate solutions. And it's kind of like also quite an ambitious goal, I think it's to double investments in that specific area. So firstly, what kind of moves is balanced in in those directions, maybe be it products, be it allocation, climate solutions. And secondly, again, how does that stack up against emissions and carbon footprint? Because obviously, when we think about uh, wind turbines, those are one of the biggest emitters out there, let's well, to produce one, basically. Great point. Uh, so I think you're getting into the realm of scopes in scope one, scope two, scope mm -hmm. three, emissions. Um, right now, the data that is available, that's most readily available, is scope one and scope two. Uh, and then scope three, um, there are providers out there um, who provide estimated scope three emissions um, using various methodologies. Um, and so one of the things that we highlighted earlier was, was what was happening during the climate summit here in the US. And I kind of highlighted this one um, point that that uh, John Kerry made about mandated climate disclosures, um, that's really critical. 
Um, that seems really basic and, and maybe, you know, specific, um, but that's foundational to be, to unlocking the potential of this whole initiative um, because we will have better data to help us think through those scope one, scope two, scope three consequences of investments. So what we've done so far in terms of our internal um, tools is we've built a, um, a carbon dashboard um, and you can look at it at your portfolio level or you can look at it at, your, at an, a company level and understand scope one and scope two um, uh, and then estimated scope three um, via these, these different estimation sources. Um, so we'll be measuring our progress using the scope one, scope two data while we seek better information on scope three, but we're exposing scope three data um, so that we're not leaving that out of the equation. Um, it's just not, uh, it's not being uh, reported on as of yet. Um, so we do need some more uh, uh, advancement of data in that area. Um, we have a climate adaptation strategy that is looking for companies that help um, the, the um, world or society really survive or thrive in these new climate conditions. So that's a really unique idea that um, no matter what we do on mitigation, we're still going to see a lot of climate change over the next two de decades. And in fact, the science shows us that. Um, the various RCP scenarios, whether it's business as usual or reduction in, in emissions, they basically look the same until you get to 2050. There's only minor variations. So we're, we're in for a fair amount of climate, physical climate dis disruption. Mm -hmm. um, so we wanted to create a strategy that looked for companies and tried to you know, get companies capital who are going to help us adapt to a changing climate. So that's another form of solution. And then um, also strategies that invest in more typical climate mitigation um, ideas, whether they be pure plays and clean tech or whether they're um, focused on the transition of a, of a company that's transitioning out of an emitting business and into a renewables business. With climate uh, adaptation, I think it's quite a fascinating topic, but uh, what kind of solutions uh, do you have in mind? Because I've heard before there is this whole kind of like idea you can provide ventilation that will cool kind of buildings down you can also have uh, investments in software that designs more climate um, kind of like uh, adapted buildings uh, so what, what kind of solutions uh, did you have in mind well there's a there's a variety of different types of solutions infrastructure engineering companies dredging companies um, water resistant building materials um, air conditioning and, and refrigeration, um, water solutions and, and water meters. So one of the big issues in, in water is um, transmission. We lose a lot of water, which is a precious resource through transmission um, with some, some technology. Obviously the world has become much more technologically advanced since we put in our water infrastructure. You can predict where, where that loss is going to occur. And rather than having to dig, dig up whole lines, you can go and more target um, uh, uh, solutions, if you will, or, or, or fixes um, in a, in a cost-effective way. Um, generators, um, so those types of solutions. And now your audience will probably think, well, a lot of those solutions may create more emissions. And in some cases, obviously we'll be seeking to 
um, invest in the in the companies that have the uh, lower emissions um, but are providing that solution. But in some cases, we we do acknowledge that. Um, and the way that we think about it is when given a choice, um, whether we're going to help uh, people adapt um, or not, um, we're probably going to choose to help those people and find the emissions reductions elsewhere. So um, just to bring that to life, you know, India is going to experience a lot of extreme heat and air conditioning penetration in India is quite low. Um, and some of those extreme heat conditions will be unsurvivable. Our expectation is that, that the world um, and investors and government will choose to, to have air conditioning to help their population survive, even if it increases emissions and that will seek those emissions reductions elsewhere. Um, so there, is the, there are these trade-offs that will be complicated. Um, one thing that I wanted to talk to you about today is actually Wellington Management's uh, um, voting record on climate issues, because we have this NGO chair action, which is tracking all the votes of asset managers. And what I've noticed is that Wellington went from almost like 10% to 62 year on year, which is quite a big fit. So what kind of work was behind this and how did the firm manage to boost the numbers so quickly as well? I think there's a lot of um, factors that contributed to that. One is the more in-depth understanding of physical climate risks. So again, we were building this as a research discipline from the ground up so that investors became more and more acutely aware of physical climate risks. And that has a lot of benefits because it then leads you to um, understand the transition and the necessity of the transition and the fact that the transition will be one way because you'll continue to see more physical climate risk disruption more repeatedly and um, more frequently in the future. So that grounding and understanding was really important. Um, and then I think as, as a firm really thinking about our voting um, and, and traditionally we're very deliberate voters, meaning we, um, we think about the language we think about the very specific ask that's being written for in the shareholder proposal. Um, we think about the conversations that we've already had the company and what they've already committed to do or what they are, are doing. Um, and that led us to, um, in many cases, dismiss some of the previous uh, shareholder proposals because we said, you know what, this company is already on this path. We've already talked to them. They said that they're doing this. Or we don't exactly agree how this shareholder proposal is written um, in what they're asking for. And what we did year over year is we recognized that um, whether we specifically agree with the exact letter of what's being asked for, that the signaling mechanism is really important. We agree with the spirit um, and that we can engage with the company and say, hey, listen, we voted for this shareholder proposal to send you the signal that we agree with the spirit of where this is going. And this is what we wanna see you to do, see you do. Um, and so that was a little bit of a mindset shift, I think, that un unlocked our ability to vote more in favor of some of the proposals, um, even if the language wasn't as precisely as we would have written it. 
And looking into 2021, what are going to be your engagement priorities, be it climate or even some, something else? Because I can definitely see how the patterns of voting are shifting uh, when you look at asset managers. I know there is a bit more focus on uh, human capital, for example, but also a bit more focus on climate. So from Wellington's standpoint, where are, you, are your priorities for this year, even compared to last year? Well, you know, as, as uh, foreshadowed in our earlier parts of our conversation, um, uh, 2021 and, and beyond our engagement and, and voting priorities will be um, focused on um, the net zero transition um, so that you'll see that um, continue to be an increasing focus for us. Um, and then uh, in 2021 in this voting season that we're in the middle of right now, um, a focus on diversity disclosures. Um, so right now, there, and particularly in the U.S., and we sent a, a letter to all the large U.S. companies to say we support racial and ethnic diversity and that we would like more information on the board makeup uh, at the aggregate level um, and that they should provide more disclosures. Um, and we feel really strongly that we want the companies to provide data and that that's the first step um, rather than trying to vote um, against board members based on some sort of visual identification of diversity, which we think is, is not maybe the strongest, um, strongest methodology. So pushing for disclosure this year and then escalating next year um, based on what is disclosed is more of our, you know, it's more of a two-step approach. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us today. A very interesting conversation about uh, climate and uh, engagement. So thank you for taking part. Thank you. Thank you.